Our scripture reading this morning is in the book of Haggai. We're in chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of foods, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, but were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since that Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, and consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. You may be seated. All right, welcome, guys. Uh, My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse, and uh, we are covering your favorite passage this morning. So um, pretty much I'm just going to say, you know what it means, and then pray, and then we'll be done, because this is easy stuff. Um, So for real, we've been in the book of Haggai for a couple weeks. Um, It is not a very popular book. It is a small book right towards the end of the New Testament, or Old Testament rather. Uh, It is a post-apocalyptic prophetic book, so it is a a word that comes to God's people. Uh, Sorry, I said post-apocalyptic. Post-exilic. This is not post-apocalyptic. Erase that. Post-exilic prophetic book in the Old Testament. That means that God's people Israel were in their land. They were screwing up really bad, and God finally said, I'm going to judge your sins by sending you into exile, right? Babylon comes and takes over, um, sacks Jerusalem and takes people into exile in Babylon, and they're there not for two years, not for four years, not for 10 years, but for 70 years. And God says eventually he's going to bring them back, and he does so. And when they come back into the land, they seek to rebuild their lives, rebuild the temple, rebuild the community of God. And everything is different than what it used to be like. Uh, We spent the last two weeks talking about the unspectacular nature of the rebuilt temple that they were in the middle of working on. Um, There were some people in their midst that looked back and remembered what the temple once was like. 
and they looked at the new temple that they were re- rebuilding right there in Jerusalem after exile, and they bawled their eyes out. They wept because they thought it was so uh, lackluster compared to what existed before. It was so subpar. It was insignificant in their eyes compared to what had happened before. But there's this interesting tension because people also rejoice at the rebuilding of the temple. Because it's a good thing that God has brought them back to the land and that he's reestablishing his presence among them and saying once again, I am your people and you, uh, or I am your God and you will be my people. Um, And so we have this mixed situation going on after the exile, much like our mixed situation, which is often filled with both joy and sorrow, is it not? We often find so much beauty and glory and triumph and wonder in life and in following Jesus and in the church and in our families and in our communities, mixed with the utter tragedy of death and and sorrow and loss and, and, and disappointment and things that let us down. We walk in this both and situation just like the exiles walked in when they were in Jerusalem. And one of the things that we see as a reminder to the exiles here in this closing section of Haggai is that they're following after God's word, their obedience to his call to them. They're, they're walking in step with what he's commanded. It matters after they've come back from exile and are, are reestablishing his, his uh, kingdom in Israel. It matters what they do that it matters to God and it matters to the community that they walk in step with the Lord. And in this passage, which is kind of, it's like taking two of the worst things that we know about, the, or two of the hardest things to know about the Bible and putting them together into one lesson because Haggai, which none of us are familiar with, talks about Leviticus, which is none of our favorite book, right? So we've got an awesome lesson today talking about two extremely obscure things, uh, but in the end, God brings a tremendous promise through what he says about Zerubbabel, which is also one of our favorite people, right? What he says about Zerubbabel and how that all connects and points forward to Jesus. It's really a cool lesson. Uh, but we're going to do some unraveling here. Um, hopefully it's not too boring at the beginning. And then we'll, uh, we'll shoot off toward the end, toward seeing something glorious about God's fulfillment in Christ. So let's pray because I need help. Uh, you need help. We all need help. And um, this is God's word. We really want his spirit to move and to speak to us. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this a glorious moment to be able to pause and consider um, what it is that should be central to our lives, um, what it is that should take priority and, and be um, exalted and lifted up among us. Um, and that is that, that you've revealed to us <clears throat> how it is that we might uh, live our lives in, in obedience to you and glorify you, um, and that how our, uh, our obedience actually uh, matters in this world, uh, and that it is important and that it is urged by you, um, that we follow after you and, and uh, walk in your ways and seek your will. Um, and then most importantly, God, we see that, that our obedience cannot and will not be the thing that makes us holy. It is Jesus' obedience that makes us holy. Um, point us to this tremendous and important truth today. God, that we would look at our actions and say, yes, they matter. And that we, by your spirit, would evaluate our hearts and consider how it is that we are supposed to walk in obedience to you. But that through that process, we would see something deeper and more glorious and more lasting. And that is that Jesus has obeyed perfectly in our place. Like we just read a minute ago in 2 Corinthians, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is a tremendous truth.
help us to understand how it is that the holiness and the blessing and the love of God are put on us as followers of Jesus. It is because of Jesus that we can be blessed by you. It is because of Jesus that we are loved by you. It is because of Jesus that your favor rests on us. So would you lift our hearts and lift our eyes even through obscure texts in the Old Testament today? Would you lift us to see the glorious reality of Jesus Christ? We pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen. So this is, uh, today we're actually going to cover the last two oracles of Haggai. Um, and uh, like I summarized a minute ago, when the people came back, they started doing some rebuilding. And at the beginning of Haggai, we see him call them to account uh, for the fact that they started but then gave up rebuilding the temple. Do you remember this? They started, uh, Jason talked about this in the, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, how they started but then they, they faced some opposition and resistance. And so they were like, okay, never mind. This is hard. Must not be what we're supposed to do since it's so hard, right? Like they step back and they just think, okay, well, never mind. And then Haggai comes to them a little bit later and says, what are you doing? You're lining your houses with paneled wood while the temple of God lies in ruins. So in fact, we find out that the people didn't stop building. They just stopped building God's temple. They went home to their houses and made sure that they were all lined in nice wood panels and looked good and everything. And so Haggai confronts them and says, in fact, that it was disobedience to do that. And they respond, right? They, they respond to that call from God to be obedient and to rebuild the temple, and they start to work. It's a beautiful thing. Ezra records it as well. The people come back, and they start to work on the temple again. Yes, it's underwhelming, right? Yes, it's not what they hoped it would look like. Yes, it's still difficult, but they, they responded nonetheless. They responded, and we, see, uh, we saw earlier in Haggai that the Spirit of God moved on their hearts and that the strength of God entered the community and that they were therefore enabled to respond in obedience to God. And so they started to work. And what Haggai does here to wrap up his uh, oracles to the people is he reminds them of some of the things that had happened before. But before he reminds them of what had happened before, he, he, he pulls in a lesson from Leviticus, which seems kind of funky and out of place, but it's really important to understand this. So I'm going to reread uh, this really clear passage about uh, Leviticus from Haggai 2, 10 to 14. He says this, On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. Okay, so he's saying go to the priests and, and question them or give them a quiz about the Levitical law. He says, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any other food, does it become holy? That's the question. The priests answer and say no. Okay, they got it right. Verse 13, then Haggai says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and says, yes, it does become unclean. Again, they're right. Verse 14, then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So question one, in regards to the Levitical law, if somebody has holy meat, and they're carrying the holy meat either to or from the sacrifice in their garment. Is their garment holy? Is their garment clean? 
The answer is yes, their garment is clean. Then he says if they take that garment and then go touch other unclean things, do the unclean things then become clean? No. Okay, strange little what? Okay, a, a clean holy thing touched by an unclean holy thing. The, the meat makes the carrier holy, but then the carrier can't go and make something else holy. The, the holiness is not transferable through the garment. Okay? And the reason that clean and unclean and holy and unholy things matter in the book of Leviticus is because God has set the nation of Israel apart from every other nation, and he's told them to set themselves apart or to separate or become different than the nations around them. Why? Because God was holy and because God was in their midst. And in order for them to represent God and to interact with God in their worship and in their sacrifices, they, need to, they needed to be made holy. They needed to be cleansed. Ceremoniously, this happened through all sorts of laws in Leviticus. That's why it's so boring to read it sometimes. You're just like, oh my gosh, they had to scrub the wall, they had to change the clothes, they had to wash, they had to stand outside for seven days. Right? They went on and on about. All of those things in Leviticus were reminders to the people at how holy and separate and other God was than everything else in the world. And most of the cleanliness laws had to do with things that died. Anything that had anything to do with something that was dead or something that could die had to be separated because God lived eternally. In God, there is no death. In God, there is no decay. In the world around us, there is all sorts of death and decay. And so God, through the book of Leviticus, showed his people, this is how I'm different than everything else. This is how I'm different than the world around. This is how I'm different than the gods around you. This is how I'm different than you. I am like the sun. I bring life and I bring holiness and I bring glory. But if you get too close, you'll be charred. My holiness is distinct and unique and is utterly different than who you are. And so all of the ceremonious laws showed the people this glory of God and how things needed to be separated and consecrated. That's why only priests could do sacrifices. That's why only once a year the holiest priest could do the one great sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of atonement. There was these laws and these rules that were laid down for the people of Israel so that they remembered. You don't just walk up to God willy-nilly and say, hey, bro, right? He isn't just your friend. He's the eternal, omnipotent, completely glorious God of all creation. He must be approached in the way that he says he is to be approached, that we might remember he is different, he is holy, he is other. But the glory of the book of Leviticus is that God did say, come to me. <laughs> he said, come. Here's how, but come. Right? And sacrifice after sacrifice after law after law points forward from Leviticus through the Old Testament into the New Testament to a way that would be made through the Lamb to once and for all say, come near. Come near. Approach with boldness and confidence because the Lamb has been slain for Right? Leviticus points us forward to that truth, and Haggai here reminds the people of how the conduct of holiness and unholiness, cleanliness and uncleanliness matters. Right. So the second lesson that he asks is if there's somebody that's unclean, they're made unclean because they've come in contact with a corpse, can that unclean person then make other things unclean? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. The uncleanliness 
of human sinfulness and human decay is transferable, okay? It's a funky lesson from Leviticus that moves us all the way forward to this point in Haggai where Haggai says, listen, in regards to the ceremonial laws, unclean things touching other things makes the other things unclean. These people are defiled. They're unclean. And they're working on the temple. The work of their hands is not clean. It's actually unclean. It's this strange illustration that helps us to see that the work that God's people are doing is actually being tainted by the sin of the community. That the work of rebuilding the temple is not perfectly clean. There's something about the people, what they've done in the past, what they're doing today, what they will continue to do as fallen, broken people that is affecting the, the, the work on the temple. And God wants to do something about it. He brings it to their attention because he's saying there is something that I'm going to change about humans. There's something internal and deep that I'm going to bring about a change in and that change is going to come, later we see, through my action and through my deeds that eventually points us toward Jesus, who is the Holy One. So this interesting little illustration concludes with the idea that these people, though they're working on a good thing, are still defiled people, right? And this is, this is a lesson for us as we seek one of, the, one of the big points of this passage is obedience. Uh, as we seek to follow Jesus in obedience, we must understand that our obedience is, is mixed and mingled with sin. That we, because we are broken and fallen creatures, we will never totally, utterly, and completely be obedient to God, even though we will be called to walk in obedience, and we will often respond to God in obedience, our obedience will not be complete. That's part of the point of all of the Levitical laws to show that even in our best days, we still need cleansing. Even on the most holy day, there is still a danger to the priests. Even on, in all of our uh, consecrated works, there is still the need for God to bring cleansing. And so the people are unclean, and what they do is affected by that uncleanliness. And so therefore, what they offer there, he said, what they offer there at the temple is unclean. And this is a sobering moment to consider, that even hands that are pursuing obedience to God are still stained hands. It's a, humility, it's a, it's a humbling thing um, where God beckons us to remember the truth of our state before him. But he doesn't leave it there. In the next verse, he, he considers, or he calls them to consider uh, how things were before. So in verse 15 through 17, he, he tells them to look back at how things were before they started the rebuilding. Okay, so verse 15, he says, Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? Okay, before you started the rebuilding of the temple, what, what was going on? How was life? He reminds them. Okay, and he illustrates. He says, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but, there were but 10. Okay, you came to gather 20 measures of your food, and, and there wasn't enough there, is what he's saying. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 measures, there were but 20. Okay, there was lack in the land. 
This points to economic lack. It points to agricultural lack. There was lack in the land before they had come back in obedience to rebuild the temple. Verse 17, God says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So he reminds them how things were. They were desperate. There was lack. There was an economic hardship on the land. There were difficult circumstances around them. Some of them were hungry. Their children weren't getting as much food as they needed. The community looked like they had no hope. There was a lot to despair at. And then God says, I did that. I made the land futile. I made the crops not produce as much as you'd hoped. I held back the rain so that things didn't grow as they should have. But why? The reason that God had left the community in this state of despair was because he wanted them to come back to him. God wanted their attention to come back to the Lord because the stuff around them wasn't going right. Right? The hand of God in this moment, it seems a little strong. It seems even harsh, but the grace of God at times is given to awaken us from our slumber, to shock us into a state where we open our eyes and we go, oh, I'm walking the wrong way. God has said, go this way. I'm literally going this way. I look around me and stuff is falling apart and it's God's grace in my life so that I might stop running this way and turn around and ask him for help. To bring me to my knees, God gives me some of these hard situations so that my heart might be revealed. The end goal of God in this difficult time is to bring the people to repentance so when the word of God came to them through Haggai, they would respond. So when Haggai said, guys, you're being disobedient, they would go, oh, we forgot God. We were so tied up in our paneled houses. We forgot God. We were getting so stressed out about how little food there was, and we didn't even ask God for help. We didn't even consider what we were doing wrong in our life. We just kept plodding on, and he's try, he was trying to draw us to him. God's work in some of the difficulties of our life is a wake-up call to bring us humbly to our knees and to say, God, will you help? God, will you help? Now, this is different than punishment for disobedience, okay? This is grace in our disobedience to still come to us and to awaken us, to bring us back to him. If it was punishment, he would just do that, okay? God's presence, God's word, God's movement towards you is never punishment. That would be punishment. For the father to turn his face away would be punishment. In our disobedience, in our forgetting God, in our focusing on our own self and not centering on him, God graciously draws near and sometimes rearranges the, the situation and the circumstance around our lives to wake us up. 
It's grace. It's grace that a disobedient people in Israel fell on hard times. It was grace to bring them back to him. So he says, think about this. Remember what things were like and consider, I wanted you to come back to me, but you wouldn't do it, but you wouldn't return to me. You see, God's desire here is clearly communicated, well, obscurely communicated, that he wants our obedience. God wants our obedience. He tells the people of Israel, he wants it and it matters. He says, remember that day. Remember what it was like. And then in verse 18, then he says, now remember when you turned back to me. He says, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, since the day you got back to work, remember. Think about that day. Think about the change in the community. Think about the reorientation of your lives back toward me as center. Think about how you began to look to me again. Think about how you began to call on me again. Think about how I said, my spirit is still with you. I have not abandoned you. Keep on working. Be courageous. Do not fear. I am with you. Think about that day. Remember that day. This is just a few months later. It's actually three months later. He's saying, remember what happened when you started the building again. But then this is interesting. Verse 19, is the seed yet in the barn? It's a question to say, have you guys sown seed for harvest? The answer is yes. But then look, indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. And so God says, remember this turning that happened in the community. Remember when you repented, when you came back to me. You've turned to me. Even though that's true, even though... I'm wanting you to remember there is still a sense in which things aren't going great. This is what we spent the last two weeks about. Wait a minute, I thought I'm, I thought I have Jesus, I thought I have grace, I thought I, I have the, the, the favor of God, and yet still sometimes things don't go right in my life. There was still this sense that even though they had sought the Lord and responded to his call, they still didn't have the fullness of the harvest. This is the idea of the far-off country that we've been talking about, that they were taken to a far-off country in Babylon, and then when they returned from a far-off country, things in their own country still seemed to be more like the far-off country. They didn't have a king. They didn't have a temple. They didn't have security. They didn't have safety. The community was in shambles. There was not a whole lot to rejoice in. It seemed like so many of their hopes had been left unfulfilled. There was this idea that on some level they still didn't feel the blessing of God among them, the drought and the blight in their crops, all these different things. And even though they had obeyed, even though they had started to rebuild, they didn't see the instantaneous transformation that they had hoped for. See, foreign kings still ruled over them. The temple was still nothing compared to what it was before. But something had changed in the community, and it was their hearts. They began, again, to consider that obedience to God rather than obedience to their own selfish desires was the way forward as God's people. 
no matter what things around them looked like, they still returned and sought to do as God had called them. One of the lessons in this and in many other places in the scripture is the important fact that obedience doesn't merit God's blessing. Just because they turned and began to build the temple doesn't mean that instantly everything was changing. Doesn't mean they had a bumper crop immediately. Right? Their obedience couldn't merit the blessing of God. It did not earn the blessing of God. And that is such an important aspect of our Christian faith to remember that obedience doesn't merit the blessing of God. You cannot, by your action, no matter how good, no matter how long, no matter how strong, you cannot earn for yourself God's blessing. You cannot. And I know that's an ego-crushing reality. And I know in some sense that is completely opposite if you've been raised in church, what you've been raised to believe. Your obedience will not merit blessing from God. Even though that's true, obedience is still commanded. God still calls them to obey. God still calls us to obey. And even though obedience doesn't earn for us God's love, Jesus still says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Right? There's connection, but it's different than we often think. The fact is, is that when we do obey God, we are recentering our lives on what he says is right, on what he says is good, on what he says is faithful, on what he says is true. And that reorientation of our life changes everything about how we see God and how we see our life. It's important, however, to remember that our obedience doesn't merit God's blessing. But this verse is interesting. It says there's still lack. And then he says, but I'm going to bless you. God still promises there will be blessing that comes. Richard Baxter says this about obedience. He says, peace and comfort are Christ's great encouragements to faithfulness and obedience. And therefore, though our obedience does not merit them, yet they usually rise and fall with our diligence in duty. The peace and comfort of Christ are great encouragements as we obey God the Father. We don't get the peace and comfort of Christ as a merit, as a badge for our obedience, but they are with us as we obey. We walk in the delight of God as we obey. We walk in what he says is his will as we obey. If you have a child and you want your child to be nourished and to flourish and to grow, I think there's a consensus here we can say you should feed the kid vegetables. Right? I think most of us, or at least science would say, if you want that child to grow in a good, healthy way, you should feed them vegetables. Now, you don't say in your mind, okay, if this kid eats these vegetables, I'm going to love this kid. Right? You already love the kid. I hope, dad, mom. You already love the kid. That's kind of why you're doing the whole vegetable thing. Because you want nourishment. You want flourishing. You want growth. You want health. Okay? So you don't sit down at the table and say, now if you eat these veggies, mommy and daddy will love you more. No. If you do, stop. <laughs> now. 
you're doing irrevocable damage to your child. But listen, still feed the kid the vegetables, right? And if she takes the vegetables and she eats the vegetables, what happens? There's delight, there's thankfulness, there's joy there, right? There's good things happening in their body. That child is trusting your wisdom over their own. Maybe it's not their favorite. Maybe they don't like the taste, but listen, mommy said, therefore I do. That's the process of child-parent relationships. I must obey. Sometimes the obedience is painful, David Alonzo. Sometimes eating the vegetables feels like murder, but it's the right thing to do two weeks in a row, buddy. Now listen, if the kid smacks them onto the ground, right? Or eats one, so you start laughing and smiling and then just like spits it back in your face. That's it. No more love for you, kid. And listen, no more food ever. No, pa- no parent is doing that, right? The wisdom of the grown, adult, trained human being over the wisdom of the little child is eat these things. This is good. This is right. It will lead you to health. It brings joy to me as a parent, but it does not earn my love, and it is not earning for you more food later on. I will feed you until you're 18. I will, no matter what. If you eat these or not, I will feed you all the way until you're 18. All right? Then you're on your own, kid. Like, I will remain faithful to you whether you do this with gladness or not. Whether this is a struggle for us or not, whether this is a point of tension from age 2 to age 12, I will still feed you. Why? Because I love you. I love you. You're my child. I look upon you with favor and grace and care and compassion and love. Child, obey me. Child, obey me. It's the right thing. Trust my wisdom. It's better than your wisdom. Eat the vegetables, child, right? Walk in obedience, child. Is it an earning? No. Is it good? Yes. Is it orienting your life towards the will of God? Yes. God here beckons Israel to consider their lives as they've obeyed the Lord, to consider what it's like to prioritize obedience to the will of God. And what's interesting is that God remembers it. God remembers their obedience. Three months later, he's coming to them saying, remember when you started to obey? He remembers their obedience. Isaiah tells us that God forgets our sin. But God remembers their obedience. Does it merit his love? No, but he remembers it. It matters, right? There's a lesson in there for some of our relationships. Forget the sin and remember the faithfulness. Amen? That's the way God looks at us. He forgets the sin because of Christ. He remembers the faithfulness. How good, how good is that? That God looks at our obedience and he locks in on it. And he says, remember what your life is like when you obey. Remember the feeling that we are together and not against each other. 
Remember the sense that you're walking in my will according to my wisdom, whether I know whether it's wise or not. I trust that he knows that it's wise because God never commands me to be obedient to anything that is not good for me. Right? That is not good for me. That's what he calls us to remember. So listen, your obedience matters. It does not merit the blessing of God. We'll get to that more in a second. But it matters. God wants your obedience. His will is that you would obey. God is beckoning you toward obedience. Maybe with some hardships. He's beckoning you to obedience. He's calling you to repent and return. Maybe you haven't woken up yet. Maybe the tough stuff around you is just making you numb. Fall to your knees and return to the Lord. He's not punishing you. He's beckoning you. Come to me, he says to your child. Walk in my ways. Fulfill my will. Some of us, our obedience is hurting us. Maybe it's hurting other people. Our disobedience is it's a rejection of God. If we know where we ought to obey and we ignore that process and yet come to God in the word and in prayer and expect some kind of great thing, we're doing two opposite things at the same time. We're turning to God and away from God, right? I urge you, where you know to obey the Lord, seek to obey the Lord, right? Some of you know, right? A friend has brought it to your attention. God's word has brought it to your attention. Just his Holy Spirit convicting you in the quiet of the night has brought it to your attention. Follow the Lord in obedience. Follow the Lord in obedience. And listen, I love you. That's why I have to say this. If all you're doing right now is thinking about somebody else, stop. That's not why we're here. We're not here for you to be the earpiece for somebody else in your life. I love you. Don't do that. Don't do that when you come to the scriptures. Don't do that when you hear the word of the Lord. It's for you. God's dealing with you. You respond to God. Don't think about them and how they need to respond to God. Humble yourself. Come to the Lord. And so ask yourself, what is that obedient step? Or where is it that you have disobedient action that you are aware of and that you're not repenting from and turning from. By God's prompting, he's beckoning us through his word and by his spirit to walk in his ways, to trust him. Like the mom with the veggies, it's good. He knows more. It's good. He's eternal. It's good. It's right. He's calling us to that place. Look again at Haggai 2.19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree has yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. Listen, this is part of why God reversed all the way back to when they were disobedient and things were falling apart, even calling them to remember Leviticus and how unclean and clean things work. He's saying here, listen, your, your returning to me is not meriting a blessing. It isn't earning a blessing. You're still unclean. Okay? You're still unclean. You can't, by a step of obedience, suddenly be holy. Okay? 
But, it says at the end of the sentence, from this day on I will bless you. There's a hope for blessing that God interjects at this moment. And so there's a planting in faith, right? They've sowed the seed that was in the barn. They didn't just give up. They continued to try to walk forward in obedience, and God says that he will bless them. But what? how? If this is a defiled people who didn't respond in repentance until God did something drastic, and even in their obedience, they're still defiled, how can God bless them? How, if they're still soiled, can God bring blessing? How, if their obedience is incomplete, can God bring blessing? How? How can he bring blessing? And this is why he turns the page and looks at Zerubbabel. The blessing of God, he says in Haggai 2 through 20 through 23, the blessing of God is going to come through the actions of God. That's why he turns the page and looks at Zerubbabel. Let's read these verses, verse 20 to 22. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Second time. So earlier that day, God comes and says, you're defiled. I tried to get you to respond to me and you ignored me. Finally, you started to work, but things are still rough. You're still a defiled people. Second word of the Lord comes to them and says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. These words, these sentences are filled with action statements about the actions of God. God changes the focus completely from the people's obedient actions to God's actions. And he says, I'm going to do again what I did before. So he hearkens back. Can you see the illusions here in the passage? The rider and the horse, right? The chariot and the army. Exodus and the sea. Our kids are studying. That's their lesson today. God makes a way in the Red Sea. You know, Israel came up there. Escape from Egypt, yay, party, we're out of here. They follow the pillar of cloud, they follow the pillar of fire. All of a sudden, boom, there's the ocean. There's the Red Sea. No way around it. Look that way, there's water. Look that way, there's water. Look that way, there's water. Look back, it's Egypt. Ugh, what are we doing here? Where do we go? Then what happens? Suddenly, Pharaoh and his army. Right? I hear the sound of thunder. (laughs) It's footsteps. It's horses. They're doomed. And they start to yell at Moses. What? Have you brought us out here to die? What's going on? Oh my gosh. And Moses says one of the most amazing things. He says, stand and watch. (laughs) We need to get our swords. We need to dip into that. Stand says oh it's amazing he says you're going to see with your own eyes the salvation of the lord it's the first time in the biblical story the word salvation is used stand and watch Haggai says remember remember you've heard the story for generations What happened at the Red Sea? 
God separated the army from the people. God parted the sea. God made a way for them to walk across on dry ground. God led them through the deeps. And God crashed the sea back over the army. God did it all. Haggai says, I'm going to do that again. The way that I'm going to bless a defiled people, the way I'm going to bring my glory to a nation that's in ruins is I'm going to act. I'm going to act. I'm going to act decisively. I'm going to act authoritatively. I'm going to act on your behalf. You need to stand and watch. It's tremendous. He says, remember, that's how. I'm going to bring blessing the way I've always brought blessing through my hand. I'm going to bring freedom the way I've always brought freedom through my hand. I'm going to bring deliverance. I'm going to bring peace. I'm going to bring life the way I've always brought them through my hand. Look back, Haggai says, right? This is why the table matters for us so much, why we put it at the end of every single service so that you remember, so that you remember Christ on a cross, all him, 100% his action. And trust in that. That's how the Lord will bring blessing. That's how the Lord will bring favor. Look at verse 23. He says, I'm going to take Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So what's up here with Zerubbabel? There's two significant things that we're going to look at and finish this, night, this morning up, this night. Number one. Zerubbabel was the descendant of a discarded king, okay? Zerubbabel was a descendant of a discarded king. His grandfather was the king who was dethroned and despised when exile happened, okay? Not a great lineage for this guy, okay? Bad grandpa. Like, this dude was the final mess that God said, all right, enough, and he dethroned the king. So that's Zerubbabel's grandpa. But more glorious, more important, more central is that Zerubbabel becomes one of the predecessors to Jesus Christ. Okay? Two passages. Jeremiah 22, verse 24 says this, As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, which is Jeconiah, which is Zerubbabel's grandpa, Though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, though he were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans. He was the signet ring. And God took the ring off and threw it on the ground. No longer do you get to be my king, God said. No longer do you get to inhabit the throne. No longer will I endure the evil of these men. I'm going to put an end to this reign. He pulled the ring off and he threw it in the dirt. That was Jeconiah. Then Shealtiel, then Zerubbabel. And God comes to Zerubbabel and says, you're my signet ring. Oh, man. That which was despised is going to be taken up and treasured again. God says, I've chosen you, Zerubbabel. I've chosen you to be my signet ring. This signet ring is a seal of authority and ownership, right? With the signet ring, a 
king makes a stamp on the document and seals it, that it's from him and that it's authoritative. God says, I'm going to restore the signet ring to your family. And then look at with me at Matthew chapter 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, the father of Judah, the father of Perez and Terah by Tamar, the Perez of Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nahon, Nahon the father of Salmon, Salmon was the father of, of Boab by Rahab, uh, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Now we're getting to some of the popular names, right? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, the father of Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, the father of Uzziah, the father of Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, the father of Amos, the father of Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim, and the brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoniah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the father of a bunch of other guys who was the father of Jacob, the father of Joseph, the betrothed of Mary, the mother mother of Jesus. Jesus has as his great, 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 great grandfather, this man Zerubbabel, who God makes a new promise to. I will bring blessing to the world through you. I've brought you, my people, back. The temple lied in ruins. I began to reconstruct it. And I've given you a new promise. I have not given up on this family. I have not walked away from my promise. The covenant that I made with your fathers, your great forefathers, I am giving to you once again that I will bless you. Zerubbabel, you will become the signet ring on the hand of God. So how do we get blessed by God? Well, we look at what God did with the rejected one. He made him the accepted one again. And how did he do that? You look further generations down and you see Jesus, the accepted one. You see Jesus who has nothing but perfection and beauty and faithfulness as his heritage. And what happened to the perfect king? What happened to the obedient king? What happened to the king who forever has borne the signet ring of God the Father? What happened to Jesus but that he was despised? He was rejected. The one who deserved to be in the favor of God was turned away from. And the one who had been despised was suddenly accepted. This is the great reversal of the promise of the coming king. That one day, though your obedience is incomplete... Though your work on the temple is with defiled hands, though you cannot perfectly, utterly, and completely follow me in all of your obedience, Jesus has, and he who has perfectly obeyed me will be rejected so that you can be accepted. This is the glorious promise for an exiled people that is our promise today that the one who should have been accepted was despised for our sake. And that we, though we should have been despised, have been held by the Father. Chosen and loved and redeemed and accepted. So our obedience doesn't merit 
this great blessing, this great adoption from God. God adopts us even though we don't deserve it. Why? Because Jesus reserved it, deserved it. And we get what Jesus deserved because he got what we deserved. This is the great reversal, Martin Luther said, that the one who had no sin became sin for us so that we who were defiled, we had unclean hands so that we might become clean, so that we might become holy. And listen, when this declaration is made about you, it changes everything about your obedience because now your obedience is not what's going to get you blessing from God. You're blessed by God. Now you get to obey. You're favored by God. Now you get to walk in obedience. You're chosen by God. Now you get to follow his will. Right? You're not blessed, chosen, and picked because of your obedience. You don't have to earn it anymore, but you get to walk freely in it. It's such a grace to be called and to walk faithfully and be blessed by God. The Holy One became defiled so that the defiled ones could become holy. So how do you find the blessing of God? You, you hide yourself in Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus. You stake everything on Jesus. You say, God, no matter how I stumble through this life, I know that I stand approved before you because of Jesus and Jesus alone. So I'm going to try to pursue obedience in these ways, and I'm going to stumble along the way, and I'm going to trust the whole time that I'm your child because of Jesus, and that you're not going to withhold the good things from me, and that you're going to continue to sustain me and to lead me and to comfort me and to give me your grace. So follow Jesus. He's the one who obeyed for you and has led the way so that you might walk in his ways. He has then also sent his spirit into our hearts so that the power of God might be alive in us. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us to lead us into the will of God. Our obedience does matter. It does. And the spirit is in you to lead you to follow in his footsteps. So may we be awakened to see that God does see our obedience and that our obedience does bring us into alignment with his will. But may, may we not trust that our obedience is the merit that brings God's blessing and love. For it is Christ alone. It is in Christ alone and his work alone that brings us completely, perfectly, wholly redeemed into the presence of God. May we trust in his work, put all our confidence in him, and know that we have God's blessing because of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, even a strange passage referring to other strange passages. Your holiness matters. Obedience to you matters. Pray that you would lead us to walk in your ways. God, that whatever conviction we've sensed by your Spirit's work through your word, that we would respond to it, that we would humble ourselves, that we would seek to walk obediently to your will. God, that we would understand that our obedience does matter, that you're looking for it, that you want it, that it is right and it is good for us to walk in your ways. And Lord, thank you that Jesus has already walked completely in perfection, in holiness, in right step with you. And because of that, 
we can have your grace and your favor. We can have your blessing because Jesus has earned for us what we cannot earn for ourselves. And so just like you called Israel to do today, God, we remember. We remember Exodus, yes. We remember exile, yes. And we remember Jesus. We remember that he who had no sin took on our sin so that we could be given the righteousness of God. This is a glorious exchange. Lord, would you explode it in our hearts and in our minds that we might worship, that we might be filled with awe, that we might respond in faith, that we might have power to obey, that we might remember what God has done for us, that we would stand by and watch the action of God to bring his blessing into our lives. God, we need it, and we love it, and we want it. Let us walk in your ways, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.